1: You're listening to the Sherlock's Podcast, your guide to a more stylish life. Hello, I'm Georgie Corridge-Cole, Sherlock's founder and CEO, and welcome to today's In Conversation with Podcast. Today, I always say I'm thrilled, but I'm really Aww. thrilled to be joined by Scott Wimsett. Scott, well, he's many things, but first and foremost, a presenter, social media director and sustainability expert, and also a husband and a father. <laughs> um He started leading content agency Bespoke Banter in 2006, and he and his team work with celebrities and brands to create content for a range of markets. Today, he joins me to talk about his career, his life, parenting in a same-sex relationship, Mm -hmm. the lessons he's learned along the way, a bit about sustainability and why it's so important, and, and... Lots more. Welcome. How lovely Ooh, to have you. I'm thrilled
2: to be here, Georgie. What a thrill.
1: Oh, well, we we met through both of our partnerships with Ask It Lovely Race Ask it. yeah. I, and I feel like we've sat on several occasions and had these conversations. We had
2: a quick deep dive together, we did. didn't we? Sort of, you know, when you sort of take one to know one type yeah, thing, we were like, we let's do this. And I think
1: there were a couple of tears and I was like, <laughs> right, you need to come and share this story your amazing story with our listeners so So thank you and let's start with with your background who are you where did you you? grow up what was your childhood like
2: oh my gosh I mean I it feels like so many other lifetimes ago but I grew up in a very small seaside town called Broadstairs which is charming very very sweet little seaside town Unfortunately for me, into a very, and I don't use that word often and not lightly, but a very eccentric family in the way of colourful people, big family. Uh, my grandmother was a big antique dealer. You know, her friend was Hattie Jakes from the Carry On movies. You know, oh uh, the guys on the beach doing the Punch and Judy were always at her house having drinks, parties. Like she was that girl. Wow. And, um, you know, and she would be the one that you'd go to with any kind of family drama or a bit of a powwow and have a gin and tonic and a silk cut in the kitchen type thing (laughs) aged 13. (laughs) You know, it was that kind of thing. And then Mummy would just host, like, always remember the house just being full of people. So often on a Sunday you would have between 15 to 20 people for lunch every single Sunday. And I think growing up with that and then sort of coming out and... You know, just being around these slight bombastic, colourful people. After lunch, we'd all be full of red wine and go and dance to the Stones in my dad's study. And, you know, that wasn't... I did my father's eulogy recently, and that was not a one-off. It was every single Sunday. So there was oh, a big wonderful. appetite for fun. And um, and then there was a school in the middle of all of it. But, um, Damn
1: it. Damn school. What was your father like?
2: Uh, Navy. Uh, on the out sort of front, very, very strict. But actually... Absolute hoot and um, and given all the right ingredients, like a bit naughty and fun. Yeah, definitely.
1: Do you have siblings? Yes. And, and Navy, your father. This sort of more is more. The doors open. Childhood. You as a gay man. When did you know you were a gay man? How did your father, your parents? take that
2: yeah I mean I don't think it was a surprise to anyone That's for put <laughs> it because I think I was sort of doing Russian ballet and tap and sort of tennis classes while my brother was doing rugby and swimming and all the rest of it I think god when did I come out it was probably when I was at boarding school in Cambridge when I when it all kind of landed and I remember wanting to tell my grandmother more than anybody else it was sort of felt like I needed to speak to her first and I yeah. remember getting back cycling to her house Going around the back of the house because I couldn't get any answer and saw her sunbathing with her best mate who was gay. And (laughs) they were sort of sunbathing on the land. So you were excited to tell her. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh, George is here. And uh, anyway, she sort of held the meeting in the kitchen and I couldn't really get the words out. And I was like, well, the thing is, I'm, uh, what I'd like to say is, I think, and she went, you're gay. And I went, yes. She went, oh, for Christ's sake, Scott. She said we've known for years. (laughs) So uh, that was it. And it was very easy. Yeah, that's
1: amazing. God. And I'm sure so many people didn't didn't yeah. have that response. I know that lucky, was. Lucky I me. mean, you're obviously still only 32. Of course. But um, yes. how old were you when you sat down with your granny and had that conversation? Uh,
2: yeah, 18.
1: 18. Yeah. And what was school like? You're obviously at the end of your school yeah. career. Yeah. How How did it feel at school? Was that uh, a difficult time?
2: No, I mean, I was I was head boy, and I think that that whole kind of showy part of sort of public speaking, when all of that nonsense that comes from being head boy, I kind of loved it, and um, I kind of acquired a new group of pals by that kind of get them all into dinner early, or I can't remember what it was. This kind of power you have as head boy. Um, but I, I was. that you were head boy I mean, I know I, I, mean, I was very academic and then I went very bonkers in the 90s right, okay, so it was okay. a little bit of the two I kind okay, of was I really studious yeah. and then I sort of discovered the parties and I was like, okay, see you later
1: <laughs> So you left school Yes And um, what happened next?
2: Uh, came to London, went to university uh, did drama at Brunel so it was a sort of, you know, drama course type thing loved that Left moved to Hong Kong, my uncle was in the government in Hong Kong, and sort of said, Why don't you come out here and just give this a go? My brother was already already living there oh really and and um my uncle was a this little really charismatic. Older gentleman, and he's still alive. He's still with us. He was director of Marines, so he was head of Hong Kong Harbour. So it was that expat kind of life where yeah. they kind of would just seem to only go to cocktail parties. So all well, they seemed to do three a night, and they did all the business. I, I mean, there were a lot. I have to that my father
1: lived in Hong Kong, right? So, so I you spent, know exactly. What I'm I spent about. a lot of time. I remember turning up for Christmas holidays once, and my stepmother saying, "We seem to have something every single." Yeah, time. and actually, the best thing about it was, was I was sort of thirteen, and there would be sixteen year olds. Snogging and getting pissed and smoking, who I thought was so cool. And then there'd, <laughs> well, and then there'd be twenty-five-year-olds, and then my parents, who must have been in their forties, and then there'd be seventy-year-olds, and they were all everyone was just having the most fabulous time together. Yeah, I know. And actually, my father had—he lived in England, stayed in England. He'd be a very different person. But it—it it, it was of a all time, wasn't it? Generation. It was all the kind
2: of Hong Kong club and the ABC and the boat club and yeah, yeah. It was it's amazing that really... he
1: actually got to work, but you know the, the stamina.
2: Uh, the stamina huge. yeah 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 I mean my uncles would have his driver sort of take him to like three parties of an evening and he would go in the front door to the first one the side door on the middle one and then leave out the back door on the last one home for dinner for eight having done three <laughs> parties and I was like wow
1: yeah I'm not I'm not so good at leaving so um,
2: yeah <laughs> Live like lessons
1: me. um so Hong Kong you were there Hong for- Kong
2: and then I I modeled in Hong Kong so I, my brother was living there he got me an introduction because I was working in a bar called the go down which was in central and then i got scouted by this agency and that changed quite a lot of my time there actually because then i could get my own flat in happy valley and i could yeah just sort of feel like i was doing something creative and Mm. it was for me and i was guilo and i had long blonde hair and i was getting jobs and i was like this is great Uh. and um yeah and then i you know had sort of fallen in love with this guy before i left and so As much as i did two and a half years there i had to come back and just see what happened with this sort of relationship and um and i did come back and it was joyful it it, was
1: joyful but he wasn't the one
2: he wasn't the one but he was amazing and it was all part of the journey
1: and so you came back here. Did you model here? What happened after It was all him? very
2: odd. I mean, boyfriend at the time, you'll laugh at this, because he was living in a squat in Brixton. And my parents were very confused <laughs> by my life choice when I was sort of with my my gorgeous boyfriend and sort of spending my time visiting him in his squat in Brixton. And they were like, you've just been on Hong Kong having this sort of she-she time and now you're done. I was like, yeah, but I'm in love. And I was genuinely <laughs> in love. Um, but then I got a job in a... The modelling was... Harder here. I mean, I think because I wasn't sort of six foot whatever, and I was getting more kind of commercial stuff that wasn't really what I wanted to do.
1: Oh, what are we? We '90s here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Early
2: '90s. So, um, yeah, so '94, 90, '95, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and then I got a job in a PR agency, uh, SPA way for Sarah Mason Pearson. Mm. <laughs> and she was quite something and I absolutely adored her. And um, yeah, and then from there I went to Modus Publicity and sort of did various different sort of fashion PR gigs and loved it to a point. And then I realised that actually I was great at the creative, but I was useless with other people's budgets. So I knew that the going senior role within sort of uh, PR wasn't my thing. Right.
1: Uh, and so so what did you do with that realisation?
2: Uh, well, it, this is the start of the business, really.
1: This is the start of Bespoke Banter. Yeah. So let's let's go back a bit then before we get to Bespoke Banter. So you were with your boyfriend in the...
2: In the Scottish in Brixton. In the,
1: yeah, you were in the Scottish in Brixton. <laughs> he wasn't the one. Talk to me about Paul O'Grady. I mean, you and I chatted. He was a, a very significant part of your life.
2: Yeah, huge part of my life. Still is in many ways. Um, I met Paul when... It was, it shows how long ago it was. It was Attitude Magazine's launch party. So, I mean, I think they've had their 20th anniversary or something not too long ago. So it was a long time ago. And um, we met and had a real laugh. I didn't think anything of it. I sort of gave him my number at the end of the evening. And then it was about three months later, I might have told you this, and I was at a Madonna concert in Brixton. And I my phone just kept on ringing nonstop. And so I eventually left the concert and went outside and was like, hello. And he's like, all right, I've just found your number in a sock. And I'm in New York with Silla. Uh, and I was like, oh, gosh, hello. And he said, well, look, I'm back next week. Why don't you come down to the house and I'll send you a driver? And I was like, okay, fine. And I phoned my mom and said, do you think I should? And she was like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> and that just sort of started this very lovely relationship. So we sort of started dating and um, you'd never put what was us your together. Age gap? Big. I think I put my parents through all sorts of traumas when they kind of go see this liver puddly and drag queen doing blankety blank, and I'm like, oh, that's my girlfriend, oh. my boyfriend. Um, oh,
1: God, I miss blankety blank.
2: Oh, It was good, wasn't it?
1: I mean, I miss Saturday night. Lily of being in her little mini skirt. Is sort of it Friday or Saturday? Saturday
2: remember. night, yeah. Saturday.
1: I miss the simplicity of.
2: And blind date and all those things. They watched
1: Blind Date, Daddy Ages, and Blankety blank. That's all you need.
2: Beverly Hills 90210. It made us so happy, didn't it? <laughs> Blissful. I mean, Nonsense,
1: shall we? <laughs> which, which streaming service shall we look at now? God. Um uh so you but started a wonderful relationship.
2: It was it was fun and you know, I was young. I mean, Georgie, I was sort of suddenly going for dinners with Joan Collins and you know, hanging out with Scylla. I mean, these sort of iconic British stars that were just Paul's friends and it and was he just really a really
1: was a star. I feel like some of our young listeners might not.
2: No, exactly. Remember, yeah.
1: or know what a star he was. What yeah. a star Lily was. Yeah.
2: Lily was major, wasn't she? Huge. Um, but it was just that was the and time was when it was all landing for him. You know, yeah. he was sort of said he suddenly did the big breakfast after Paulie Yates, and then he ended up doing Blankety Blank, and then it, you know then he had his own shows, and then it kind of really took off, and that was the time we were together. So. It was just fascinating to watch it. You know, he'd come home from the studio still dressed as Lily with a can of cider and sort of march around the kitchen with all the dogs running behind him on a trumpet. And oh I was goodness. like, you are such fun. And, you know, there's something very interesting about how you become attracted to people who are really bloody funny. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a very kind of, yeah, it's a very attractive quality in yeah. people. And something And,
1: and did not. he have that energy off screen that he had
2: without even knowing it he was funny all the time to me I laughed all the time I never stopped laughing all and I you know and then you know for whatever reasons we we didn't stay together but it was a long stint and we stayed really good friends and he before he passed he was very close to my son very close to my husband um, yeah big part of my life so sadly greatly missed greatly oh, missed but I feel he's there and I feel like it's a, he'd hate this but he feel, I feel like he's a guardian angel I, still, oh. I can hear his voice. Oh, saying God, go for it you... or don't do that, you know. He taught me a lot. Yeah.
1: Wow. So you and him went in your separate ways. And what did you work-wise? This this had been running alongside the world of PR, had it? Uh
2: Yes, and and sporadic bits of acting and bits of modelling, and you know, I was just sort of freelancing and just You're living your to be...
1: best life. I was having with an absolute
2: Paul, riot. Yeah. Having
1: dinner with Jane Collins. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, I'm so <laughs> envious. Tell us more about what life was like as a gay man living his best life in London.
2: 90s and early 2000s, it was a lot of fun. I don't know if it's quite as much fun coming onto the gay scene now in London. I'm not sure I would choose London. I'd probably go to Cape Town or something, Berlin or something a bit more fun. But in those days, you know, it was everything. I just said yes to a lot of things. And that way of growing up and being from a quiet seaside town, I sort of I think I did tell myself, let's just start doing a mantra of yes rather than no. And so that can get you into all sorts of pickles, <laughs> but it can also give you life experiences that you will hold forever. And I'm very much about trying things out for yourself and then working out whether it fits for you. Um, I don't really come from any place of judgment or, you know, you know, judge anybody by how they live their lives within reason. Um, and so it, that's my approach. It's just trying mm. as many things as you can, and then you have an opinion on it.
1: And you seem to have this amazing network of talented, creative friends. You've said you're great friends with Alice Templey, for example. I mean, you've, it's not for me to, but you know, clearly you're really loved by people. Well, that came doing with doing wonderful I things. Suppose. Yeah. How 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 does that just happen? I mean, you're pretty fabulous. So does it just? Just fabulous meet fabulous and wonderful <laughs> things happen. I, You're
2: pretty fabulous. I mean, I look at sheer Lux. I mean, you know you know how it works. It's just sort of, I had an but idea. did you work
1: hard too? Were you kind to people? Were Exactly. You, exactly. The, All of those
2: qualities that sort of hold you in good stead and build a, a brand, I guess. I mean, you know, I had an idea early 2000s that um, there might be something behind filming events or talent interviews for brands. Now, this was before... We were into social media. It was before people really knew about content as such. But I had had a good old go at PR. I'd also been doing a sort of sporadic acting gigs here and a bit of presenting. And I kind of wanted to marry everything together and started to use my network of PR agencies that I'd sort of, you know, been freelancing for for many, many years. And I remember going to Modus Publicity and sort of you know, the communication store in those days and sort of saying, well, you've got this event coming out, so why don't we film it for you? And then when I, what would we do with that? I was like, I don't know, I could syndicate it for there's you. There's
1: a thing Social coming and it's going to be huge. It's <laughs>
2: huge. huge, you're going to love it. Um, and they were really confused. You know, they. I was like, well, at the very least, we could put it on your website. Um, but in those days, the Vogue Online had just started and Dolly Jones was sort of like, well, I'll, I'll take that. If there's a, I don't know, a shop opening on Bond Street or... Kate Moss doing a new lipstick or whatever. So it just started to do its thing. And I think the that we were the first agency in London to create bespoke content for fashion and beauty brands. And I think what was the ingredient is that not one size fit all. That actually a Rimmel would be very different to an Yves Saint Laurent or whatever. And from a PR perspective, obviously I kind of understood those Mm. subtle differences Mm. in regards to how we'd shoot it, the kind of crew, the cameras, the lenses, the lighting, the the look and feel it's of that brand. Yeah. And then with time, there was that sort of trust that came in. And because I would get frustrated if they didn't sort of put the content anywhere, I'd start to syndicate it for them. So right. if it was a biggie, we could do it via Reuters in those days to sort of showbiz desks. And I could gauge what kind of traffic it was getting. And there start started for the agency
1: amazing and that was bespoke banter that's
2: bespoke banter
1: launched in 2006 yeah and that was quite a while ago and, and today
2: still going yeah it's so different to what it was i mean you know businesses sort of go in different shapes and sizes over their journey i think what happened to us i was old school so i built the business in that way with a business partner at the time that if i was going to create an infrastructure and an arm to say an estee lauder a coty a l'oreal or whatever they didn't have any of their in-house crew in those days we'd got all of that business so i felt that it was important to provide this very big team which made us quite expensive because there were lots of mouths to feed yeah um and then obviously content took off in such a way that people needed more and more more content and we became quite an expensive option so we had to sort of shrink our Mm. business offering because we had 25 in london and two in new york and it was it was hefty every month and offices and all the rest of it so um but now we're a very different business model, you know. We sort of crew up to thirty crew for like a big shoot, but the sort of day to day is four staff.
1: People always say how many people do you employ, and I'm like, that that's not the measure of success. As in, the measure is making the money. And actually, a great agency can have a very tight,
2: absolute, a nimble
1: full time team, and then you yes. and then we're in this brilliant world of freelance talent. And I think it's important in. with that, the freelance that's...
2: because they they not everyone's suitable for every job. Yeah, and so you can really bring in a bespoke team. Excuse the pun. But also the way of different creatives, yeah. like their, their whole different spin on it, it that keeps me kind of really plugged in because they're like, how about we do it this way? And as much as I I love the journey with all of the talent we worked with and all of the big global brands we worked with, that was of a time mm. where the kind of creative would be on a, on a shoot where there were, you know, many zeros on a check to create this aspirational make-believe world. I started to not believe in it as much about five years ago you know i started i know i'm jumping ahead a bit but i started to sort of look at you know just the kind of that being part of the problem that actually it's just about selling product mm-hmm. and it looks really sexy and it looks really glossy and there's a big sort of face on the tin. yeah and, yeah you know
1: yeah i sort of think the days of big ideas you know it's different in this social world where you need a lot of content all the time and, don't purpose. You, you, know, and you can have You can have these massive campaigns twice a year, but they actually cost a huge amount of money. They get quite tired quite quickly. And actually something more authentic and more raw can actually resonate a lot better and drive sales more. And yeah. yeah. But I mean, you've worked with incredible brands at Bespoke Banter, you know. I mean, you just mentioned the biggest beauty houses there in the world. So massive kudos to you.
2: The key to all of that was Kate Moss. And I, I tell her often because... We were making a lot of our our business on the back of Fashion Weeks. We would do a lot of the stuff with the BFC and, you know, a lot of the sponsors, be it Mercedes and L'Oreal and Maybelline. We would sort of capture those sort of backstage in those days before people were, you know, mopping it all up on their cell phones. It was kind of us going in and having that exclusive with that designer then going to the hairstylist, makeup parties, Val Garner, and then doing the front row. The and sort of B-roll
1: stuff, basically. So just, and making yeah.
2: assets for like a Mercedes show reel during Fashion Week or whatever. Yeah. And that was our bread and butter. And it was fine. It was fun. It was great. And, you know, lots of fun stories to share on that one. But it was it was Kate that changed what we, we stood for, what our DNA was. And that was because there was a Longchamp gig and they decided that alongside the stills, they really wanted her to talk. And we were the allotted team to come in and i was the fashion correspondent to sort of do the interview and it was one of those hilarious evenings where this sort of car had to go around sort of six times around bond street because there were so many paparazzi outside and then she eventually got through this sort of tunnel that was made so she sort of came through poor love sort of fell, fell in. Into-
0: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring
2: And thankfully, we hit it off. That evening turned the whole business around because then Kate said to Storm at the time, can we use him for all of my interviews where they want to, me to speak? And so from that, it literally, overnight, like, we did every kind of talkie piece with Kate. So then she had her unit. She would have, like, Sam McKnight doing the hair and val or charlotte doing the makeup and she felt and then
1: safe knowing that you were there The she mind. felt
2: safe yeah. and we kind of made it a conversation rather than a press release answer yeah, yeah. and that made everyone else come in the way of you know carl lagerfeld and david beckham and you know charlotte tilbury obviously and cara delevine and you know bella hadid and Gigi, and like it all then came off the back of kate so i'm always so grateful to her for that Aww. because it changed our whole dna
1: Amazing. It, so they're all people that you've worked with in a, on a similar basis, what they're interviewing them or providing the infrastructure for them? To yeah,
2: doing their interviews in their And their, if they're an ambassador of a brand, then we create all the digital content for them. And that would amazing. often be a kind of talent sort of exclusive. So I, I know Carl Lagerfeld, for example, he didn't want to do loads of media interviews. So I would go equipped with every broadsheet, every national, every consumer title, Vogue. I would have all the questions them and he would just do one exclusive with me. And then we would sort of farm it out to those various channels. So that happened a lot. Amazing. Um,
1: Who's the best person you've interviewed? Give me three.
2: Oh my God. Go on. I mean, Kate, obviously, just because I absolutely love the bones of that girl. Um, Yeah, I told told
1: you he's friends with them (laughs) all. Oh
2: no, she's amazing. We just did a shoot the other day. She's absolutely amazing. Uh, Charlotte's so bombastic and uh charismatic and powerful and yeah charlotte tilbury i you know we've worked a lot together we did an awful lot of her content when she started tilbury and um so yeah i mean just adore her uh there's more sort of academic people and actors i suppose over the years we did a really fun thing with bella hadid not too long ago which much i mean obviously lots of your listeners know about bella but um it was a sort of truth or dare thing. And her sort of team was sort of saying, well, I don't know she'll probably give you like 10 minutes. Anyway, two hours later, we're in the bath at the Langham or at the Connaught, I think it was, just doing this whole kind of truth or dare film. So she, she was such fun because what was going to be like a quick 10 minute interview turned into a two hour film.
1: That's the best thing. You clearly made her feel so fabulous and at ease that she enjoyed it. And like, I think as an interviewer, that is such a great feeling, isn't it? When you feel, and that's what you hope for, I think, isn't it? That you... Really hope you build that. Well, you sit down at the beginning and go, look,
2: this can go one of two ways. So we can either just sort of step through this as a press release, or we could actually leave something that actually will really help the brand, but help you as well. And we have a lot of fun in the process. And let's go for that one. You know, so.
1: Who wouldn't want to have fun with Scott Wimsett with a cat with a microphone? I mean, and a (laughs) bath. Sounds brilliant. So, I mean, career wise, Phenomenal. What a, what a great career story and what amazing things you've done and continue to do.
2: I love it all, actually. I'm sort of at a place where sense of purpose, creatively from self perspective, is ticking quite a lot of boxes. You know, that I get to do the directing, but I also then get to do the presenting. And then I mm. really do enjoy the post-production, sitting on the edits from my and my editors and stuff. So. Yeah.
1: You were just saying, we were just saying, we went on air, the sort of pressure to see Every single bit before it goes. But you out. know, I mean, yeah. look at
2: the growth of Sheer Lux and you have your name on all those, every single asset that comes out. It's well, sort of try,
1: Trying to let go of a few, but yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Can we go back to sort of time post-Pool? Can we get to meeting your husband, Freddie, who is also a phenomenal talent? Oh
2: Yeah, muralist, yeah, chinoiserie, and yeah, clever, clever boy.
1: How did you meet? Uh, well, I know the story you told me, but for our listeners,
2: Oh, God, do I do it? I'll do a quick whistle stop. Okay. I had been dating a guy who, sister's very famous, called Madonna. Just sort of dropped that one and that sounds really terrible. So I clashed, name drop. No,
1: great, we're loving it.
2: <laughs> it was a sort of really fun, sort of, you know, transatlantic, kind of LA London type of thing. Again, I was saying yes to lots of stuff. It was life. I felt yes is so important. So I was having fun. Um, and we stayed really good friends, Christopher and I. Um, and I was going for a casting many years later in Los Angeles at Universal. And I messaged him saying, I'm going to be in LA. Can I stay at the flat? Yes, of course. Day before he phones and says, I'm really sorry. I'm going to be in Miami for work, but I'll send my new driver. I didn't give it a second thought. Had had a birthday party the night before in Somerset. So I kind of get to LAX, slightly not slept that well. Thought I would just sort of try to have a sort of little, um, you, you know, a sort of hairy dog. Um, well, I, I sort of had a gin and tonic on the flight and then it was sort of made me feel even worse. So I kind of got off the plane looking a little bit like Ken Dodd. I was sort of one <laughs> eyeball over here and just not looking my best. And then uh, Freddie was standing and I'd been single for like six, seven years. Freddie was standing under a skylight with the sun shining down on him in these sawn-off denims with my name, Scott Wimsett, on a card. It was love at first sight. I fell in love at that moment knowing it was gigantic and I don't know how and why what happened there to make that so gigantic and significant, but I knew that we had a history, a, a story together moving forward. It was just plainest day I just knew.
1: Wow. Oh, that really made, made me... Gave me the butterflies. So he picked you up.
2: Oh yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well we'll squirt through what in happened. A, over in a Mustang. The, the, yeah. right.
2: He was a terrible driver, by the way. And in those days I was smoking fags, so I couldn't look at him and I was sort of smoking out the window, just so nervous. Just thinking if if this is what I think it is, then I'm
1: gonna die thinking that I've met the love of my life. He might be a terrible, he might kill me with his driving. I'm yes. gonna die he was with a cigarette. Appalling
2: driving, yeah.
1: So so he was obviously based in LA.
2: Yeah.
1: You'd flown over. How did you two end up back here together, married?
2: In that time in LA, there was all sorts of certain things happened and Christopher got quite unwell and ended up in in hospital. And so we were both sort of tending the sort of hospital trips and Freddie would turn up and sort of drag occasionally to cheer Christopher up. So he'd have these like nurses outfits on with sort of thigh high boots up to here full of balloons. And I'd be like, wow, you're definitely somebody I want to spend the rest of my life with. You're brilliant fun. It was just this sort of, you know, big lovely love story in the space of three weeks and then I sort of left uh, because he had a boyfriend at the time but they were very unhappy ah. and nothing had happened and all that kind of stuff it was all pretty well behaved and um, and I left and I came back about six months later knocked on his door and did a whole kind of sort of Hugh Grant kind of talk about how much I'd fallen in love with him and I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him and he agreed to come back to London and that was it I knew he was single at that point so
1: so he came back to London he
2: came back to London
1: when did you get married?
2: We got married about two and a half years after that. Okay. In, uh, we had three weddings, which is very greedy of us. <laughs> one for my mother, the illegal one in the UK. And then we were going to have our proper wedding in Los Angeles where all our sort of pals would come in in Ohio. Um, and then our Somerset friends said, look, a lot of us are on farms with tons of kids. We can't all get to L.A., so why don't we do another wedding for you? So it was ridiculous. Oh, OK, then. <laughs> three weddings, which I do apologise for those who came to all three, but thank you for coming.
1: I'm sure I'm sure they were delighted. <laughs> I bet they were great fun. Uh, you say the illegal one in the UK, that's because marriage, yes. same-sex marriage hadn't been legalised here.
2: No, it had been legalised here, but Freddie had to stay in the country. I was an American citizen, so I had to sort of marry him sharpish so oh, he I didn't s- have to hoik it back to L.A. Oh, I see.
1: See, so mummy did see. a
2: very moderate kind of family gathering in the garden and then we got we did the mariage and then we had the big wedding in la
1: i'd like to see pictures yes what did you wear
2: freddie made our outfits he's could to be clever that one he grew up on a farm in minnesota from a family that had this real can-do attitude they did everything themselves so very different childhood to me you know he would so, is he american yeah so he could fix the car, he could make a dress, he can paint the walls, he could, you know, he's incredibly useful, can do about stuff. So he made our wedding outfits, which were lovely. Oh. I'll send them to you I'd pictures. love to
1: see. I'd love to see. And you lived in London for a while?
2: Yep, all the time. Yep, we were living in London.
1: And you're now based in Somerset?
2: Mostly Somerset and Portugal.
1: And you have a son who you adopted? Yes. And can you tell us about the process? knowing you were going to do it, why you chose that route.
2: Yeah, I don't want to be contentious about it. I guess from a gay man's perspective, I do feel that there are certain duties in the way of parenthood and that there are an awful lot of children that need a home. So as much as I have gay friends that have gone down the surrogacy route, again, I'm not coming from a place of judgment. My own personal decision was to adopt. And it comes with all of its complexities, as you can imagine, because invariably they have come from trauma. So that was very sort of true of our son's case. You know, he arrived with a whole bag of worries, I guess, as a, as a little boy. At what age? He was four. So he'd had quite a long time in a chaotic setup. You know, Freddie and I were with an amazing agency called Family Futures, who we still privately raise money for because they are the Aston Martin of the adoption world. They're absolutely incredible. And I'm not entirely sure we could have got to where we have in the way of uh, all of us feeling so safe if we didn't have them. They are literally at the end of the phone all the time you need them, and we really did need them in the early days. How yeah. long
1: was the process?
2: So two years from beginning to end, but they, with Family Futures they really build you up. So they really get you prepped and ready. It's a quite an interesting process. We'd quite often come back from the sessions, Freddie and I, and open a bottle of wine and go, God, I didn't know that about your childhood. Or, you know, there were fascinating things that we found out about each other that really equipped us for parenting and knowing our skill sets sort of independently. You know, the process of meeting your, your child is, is, again, fascinating because our son was supposed to be going to another family. I thought he was ours all along, but at the last hurdle, they said, I'm really sorry, we're sending him to another family. And I was having breakfast with Alice. Chateau Melmont, I remember it vividly. And uh, and the phone rang and it was Freddie and he said, everything's changed, he is our son and he arrives in two weeks. You know, when you, your gut instinct had told you that that was going to be our reality. Yeah, so the, within a week we were kind of camping out at his foster family's house and um, in, around the corner in a B&B and each day they would sort of slowly introduce us more we'd go and spend a bit more time with him so eventually you kind of not just sort of waking up in the morning and seeing him at breakfast you'd sort of do story time and bath time you know you would take him out for a picnic and so one day they said just be really speedy about it just sort of one morning just came in did the paperwork popped him in the car and came back to camden and started our life together and i remember i'll never forget looking into the garden we'd only been there two hours and the two of them freddie and our son were gardening together and i was cooking lunch and just thought here's our life here it is Wow. And now, you know, he's living in Somerset and having the time of his life and thriving. And he's 11 and he's a happy, gorgeous, well-adjusted little boy. Just dyed his hair, bleached all his hair peroxide. He's got two dads that are pretty uh, up for saying yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And how does he feel about having two dads?
2: Oh, he's made up. He loves it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I more mean, what's mummy. Not to lie, you I, know. I think he call, he does think I'm more mummy than daddy. So I'm Pops. Freddie's daddy, I'm Pops. I was going to be Papa, and I thought, oh well, no, that's too Camp. I'll be Pops. <laughs> so I've gone with Pops and I mean, I'll grow into it, I suppose. It does I feel a bit granddad.
1: Do you feel like you can just be you? Do you feel totally at ease? I feel like you do. I feel like totally, you just yeah. own it. And you-
2: my mother's sister died very young and so her two children came to us. So from three kids, we went to five in quite a short sort of period of time. Um, and so I just sort of love the chaos of life and the busyness. I'm very used to that. That's sort of my modus operandi. It's how I grew up busy table trying to vie for attention, you know. So a child who so maybe of
1: the best people did, I have to say. But you know
2: what I mean? Yeah. You know, I've interviewed, kind of I've interviewed many people and,
1: who've said the same and you're always like, oh that sounds fabulous. And they are fabulous as a result.
2: But I think, you know, our son, you know, he 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 there were complications at the beginning and I wouldn't forever sort of suggest it was easy. But there was a huge permission for humour. And there was also a lot of time in. And we were you know, from a gay perspective, I suppose, Freddie and I were empaths. We were really willing to sit down and have that big, let's have a conversation about how you feel. So it was never about sort of copying traditional parenting that would have been slightly Victorian from our families growing up. It actually was very sort of therapy-led. And so everything that we would suggest that for our son would be a good idea. It was never you're just doing this, you know, don't speak back type thing. It was like the reasons why, darling, is big and we always end with is because I want you to be safe. And I love you so much. And we say all of that all the time. I still do. Every night I go into his room and and when he's fast asleep and before I go to bed, just sort of whisper in his ear, I love you. It goes through somehow. It sort of, he feels very safe.
1: I would say to my daughter, you know, I love you so much. She said, Mommy, I know you tell me all the time. You <laughs> like, and daddy tell me forget. all the time. I was like, but I do, but I do. And I can't I, I, I underestimate three, but. Can't underestimate how much, how important that is. You're amazing no, to run no, your business no. and have three babies. No, 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 don't. It's all, it's all I mean, chaos. All, I love strong women. It's, it's all chaos. And, and do you have advice for other people? You know, if there are other gay men, women listening who want to go down the road of adoption is there advice that you have i mean it, huh. i imagine you just took it all in your stride and look
2: i mean i think parenthood anyway comes with a whole yeah. load of complications it's it's never a sort of straightforward thing it's not a yeah, linear line you. you know it's you know that one it's uh, and all the ages present different sort of narratives and it's making sure that you have a lot of fun with it advice would be it's not for everybody i think freddie and i had to really make sure that we were solid enough to do it because it Again, and he wouldn't mind me saying, it was full on for us at the beginning Mm. because we had a son with a a lot of needs. Mm. But gosh, we're a unit. We're so super tight, the three of us. It's a very (sighs) powerful thing.
1: That gives me all the feels. Uh, It seems like you deserve every minute of that. Um, Can you tell me a bit about... Building your own brand. Have you consciously done this, or are you just like gay extra and no, a yes man I don't, in the no, best?
2: No, I work with talent, so I'm sort of they're the talent, and I'm just sort of the reporter, a correspondent, a sort of trusted advisor, an investigative.
1: But aren't of- the best reporters, correspondents, presenters? Aren't they also? Don't they bring their own?
2: I think razzle dazzle. I think it was very much about. Trust because obviously when you're dealing with the profile of some of our clients, it was about making sure that everything lined up, that the digital click play assets that we create or the stills on the back of campaigns or whatever, that they really firmly trust that you've got their best interests and the brand's best interests. Mm. And um it's not quickly earned. Mm. It's Does, it
1: takes time. It's
2: a long time.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you've I'm sure you've grafted hard. In fact. I know people say you work incredibly hard and you know, that counts for do a lot. Do they? Oh, that's yeah, they do oh, very sweet.
2: But I've also, you know, it's about the kind of, you know, what does success look like? I, I I, feel like there's so long ahead. There's so much to do still. I don't feel at any point, oh, I've I've made it. You know, I don't feel like that. The only thing I, I feel does look like success, because money will follow and that's all secondary. It's about getting the trust and the respect from your fellow people that mm. you work mm. with. That to me... Is and that's the such, most important thing.
1: That is such good life advice. I, I really believe that. Yeah, I think that's that's great. Can we talk a bit about fashion and style? And I'm I'm used to seeing you in a suit. I know. And ask looking very. Sorry, smart. I'm just. And a here bit you are flight. looking very Somerset and wonderful. Oh no! And you've taken off your brilliant coat. My like,
2: Oxfam coat from Bay Garnet.
1: which I Isn't love that... because she was here this yes. week and was a massive hit. Yes, um, love Bay. But. Tell me, tell me about your it's, own personal style and how you've created that. Has it just happened? Do you know, it's in changed in so blood, much over
2: the years because as a fashion correspondent, obviously you kind of feel like you need to not neglect that side of things. And you know, very fortunate over the years, you know, if you're doing an event for a certain brand, then they dress you. And so, you know, with time, I've always been a thrifter, so I've always loved sort of diving in. And if I'm in New York or LA, brilliant sort of uh, secondhand shopping there, pre-loved. I had a funny old gig many years ago. I want to say 2009, for about four years. um, Alongside Bespoke, I was doing something called the Scott Report, which was Hello's magazine's online uh, international fashion correspondent. Mm. That kind of just gave me a bit of an option to do, like, some events in the week. So whether it was the Serpentine Gallery summer party or some sort of red carpet, or I would be in New York Fashion Week or, you know, whatever it was. And so that kept me really visible. And it also really makes you kind of think carefully about what you're wearing mm. all the time because you're constantly on camera and you're constantly sort of out and about and not wanting to repeat it too much. In those days, you didn't repeat it too much. Now, obviously, is applauded, and I love that. That in those days, you didn't wear the same thing yeah, yeah. last week on another thing. So I don't have a particular style. I think when anyone goes into my wardrobe, there are so many different characters playing out, and it depends how I feel on the day. Yeah. You know, I've got a lot of Moroccan clothes, a lot of Indian clothes, a lot of Savile Row, a lot of proper Somerset hippie stuff, Glastonbury, you know, it's all shapes and sizes. It depends how I feel and where I am in the world,
1: I Mm. suppose. And advice to other men when it comes to style? I mean, it's a sort of cliche question, but are there some sort of general style tips that you live by? It's
2: really boring. I mean, one of my things, I think, for everybody, men uh, and women, and they, and everybody, is to really look after yourself health-wise. Because... How you feel and wear clothes when you actually have a bit of a healthy bod underneath is absolutely the sort of backbone to style, I think. It's how you hold yourself. It's how you the f- clothes fall on you. I think given the time, I mean, I swim a lot. I run a fair amount. Um, I'm, You know, I'm a skinny Blinks anyway, but it's just I think it's I really noticed it with models that I've worked with just looking after your body. Then style will follow. Mm. Uh, my granny always used to say, "Look in the mirror before you go out and remove something. Mm. Don't keep it too busy." I think that's a good one.
1: Occasionally, I want to be a Christmas tree and put everything off. But oh, I mean, yeah. you know, your granny, your granny is right. And, and what about grooming wise? Oh,
2: gosh, I mean, I, I use a lot of stuff. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I suppose I've always been a beauty junkie, and being in the gig that I'm in and the clients that i have and then i work with the i'm on the advisory board for the british beauty council you know we get we get a lot of stuff i i I love products but i've definitely been going much more down the sort of you know ethical green natural skincare route Mm. in the back of my values for sustainability uh and we've started something called the sustainable task force on the Sustainable Beauty Coalition, which is an arm of the Beauty Council. So it's a sort of team of industry people who are working with brands to help them realise their sort of green targets. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of definitely something that's happened with Bespoke because we started the Feel Good Fellowship, which is an arm of Bespoke that I did with Arizona Muse, who's a model and activist and good friend. We started it together and we sort of went to lots of brands to get them to... Speak openly, removing the fourth wall and being a little bit more transparent mm-hmm. about what their business is mm-hmm. all about, which in those days, you know, it was complex for a yeah. lot of them. Well,
1: we've come a long way, haven't we?
2: And now we're in a different place, yeah. yeah. So it's sort of very much the kind of work we're doing now, working with brands and exploring their B Corp, doing documentary. Arizona's no longer with Feel Good Fellowship. She started Dirt and she's doing her own thing, but we started it together and then I carried it on.
1: And this all comes under the
2: umbrella of Bespoke. Of Bespoke, yeah.
1: Amazing phenomenal what are you not into you're moving and shaking in all the right places all the right people it's a total joy to have you on our podcast oh, darling, thank you so, so much so oh. much come again soon um i'm very sad to say that's it for today if you enjoyed that then do please rate review leave a comment tell your friends to listen to and <laughs> we will be you. back soon thank, thank you, you how old up